0: Gracious God, we thank you for your promises. Your promises to never leave us nor to forsake us. Your promises that your love extends to our past mistakes, our present failures, our hopes, our anxieties. They are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that while circumstances might change, while our path forward might be uncertain, What is sure is your love. What is sure is your presence with us. We thank you that you have spoken that so clearly to us in the word of God. Now as we open it and listen to you, as we continue to worship you, we, your servants, are listening. We desire not only to hear your word, but to heed your word. Speak, Lord Jesus, speak. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. We'll start in verse 10. For those uh, children that had just received their first Bibles that aren't at DK worship, it's on page 19. On page 19, if you happen to have that Bible, it's going to be on page 19 there. Uh, Dan and Dave. Dan and Dave, go back with me to the Barcelona Olympics 1992. I was listening to an ESPN podcast recently where it kind of gave a perspective on where are they now. I was 12, 13 years old around the lead up to the Barcelona Olympics. And so I remember that Dan and Dave, these two decathletes, were the face of the NBC promotional lead up to the Olympics. Reebok used them as as this really famous advertising uh, ploy there as they were leading up to the Barcelona Olympics. Dan O'Brien was the world champion decathlete coming into the Olympic trials. Dave was to be his greatest uh, contender, greatest opponent to, to contend for the Olympic gold there. So the whole lead up was which one was the greatest athlete in the world. Dan or Dave, nothing surely could go wrong with that kind of hype. Dan O'Brien, who was the favorite to win gold, comes into the Olympic trials. And if you remember going back a a few decades ago, he misses his first pole vaulting height, uh, derailing his uh, chances to even make the Olympic team. So all of the promotional hype, all of the Olympic hope was wasted in that moment when Dan O'Brien didn't make the 1992 American Olympic team. You know, it's interesting, even the best athletes fall. Even, even world renowned athletes fail. The, the best running backs fumble the ball, Hall of Fame quarterbacks throw interceptions. World-class place kickers ultimately miss field goals. Punters will shank one once in a while. Even even the best hitters that are enshrined in Cooperstown, they ultimately have more outs than they have. Hits all of the world-class athletes that we know their names. They all fail. They all fall. I don't know if this is surprising to you or not, but when you turn in your copy of God's word, and you begin beginning to read these great heroes of the faith, those that are going to be enshrined in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, I think it's important for you to understand that they all have clay feet. That not one of them, except Jesus Christ himself, comes off without a tent of failure and a fall before them. That even the best of our spiritual heroes fall. In Genesis chapter 12, we read a story of Abram's fall. That even this great hero of the faith was not immune to failure. And we read of this in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. And we read, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. But the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, They praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. There was a type of biography that was really prevalent a hundred years ago. All of the early founders of America, some of the first biographies that you would read would be under the subgenre of hagiography. Uh, a hagiography, uh, coming from that word uh, that means holy, is, is a biography that was written for politicians, not only politicians, but preachers, not only preachers, but missionaries, not only missionaries, but athletes that really glossed over the subject's mistakes. The character flaws that would have been prevalent that everyone close to that president or close to that athlete would have known about, you won't find them in a hagiography. The character flaws that, that all humans have, they're, they're largely omitted or they're reinterpreted in a hagiography because the, the goal of that type of subgenre of biography is to exalt and at times to even deify the subject subject they're larger than life and they're they're greater than actuality because because ultimately it was a hagiography. Now, what I want you to understand about scripture is the scripture is not a hagiography. The scripture doesn't omit the failures and the fallings. The scripture doesn't omit the warts of its subjects, that Abram here, just at the outset of our introduction to him, as he leaves his land to go to the land that God is going to show him, it doesn't take but 10 verses to see failure in this hero of the faith. Because you know something? It doesn't take 10 verses to see it in yourself. But that all of us, like Abram, we know failure. And all, like Abram, have fallen. You see we're just like Abram in the sense that we are tempted to trust in self-preservation rather than God's promises. The verses 10 through 16 of Genesis chapter 12 it reminds us that we are tempted to trust in self-preservation rather than God's promises. Abram and Sarai, they follow God's call to this place called Canaan. They get there in verse 6, and God says to them, your offspring is going to be too numerous to count. You're not going to be able to even uh, hold in your hands the granules of sand to be able to see the offspring that I have before you. And so what is Abraham's response to that? Well, it's worship. They get east of Bethel. He builds an altar. He worships God there. And guess what happens? A famine comes. That Abram was in the center of God's will and famine came his way. And I think that's important for you to understand and for me to understand that being a follower of Christ does not make you immune to the famines of life. That you can be in the center of God's will for your life, that you don't have to go off on a detour to run into the terrain of famine. But famine comes to the follower of Christ and to the non-follower of Christ that you can be in the center of God's will and the famine of job loss come your way the famine of relocation come your way the famine of an unexpected call in the middle of the night that will shock your present existence that famine can come to the follower of Christ as an accident or diagnosis as the betrayal of vows that famine can come to the follower of Christ we we live in a land of absolute plenty I mean, just think that that, that we are blessed to live in 2018 with the affluence of health and wealth and and, and prosperity that that few, if any other generations or, or any other civilizations have ever experienced. But that does not make us immune to famines. The famines have no sense of prejudice. They have no concern for your race. They have no concern for your ethnicity. They have no concern for your socioeconomic status that comes to the blue collar and to the white collar. It has no concern about your church preferences. Famines come to high church goers, low church goers, and no church goers. Famines come, and they have no concern for scheduling, for what's best for you, or what best. For me and Abram, he faces a famine being in the center of God's will for his life. It is a famine that in his mind is going to threaten the land promise that God has given him, the lineage promise and the promise of blessing. And then what does he do? He detours to Egypt. Not going to be the first time that God's people are going to be in Egypt. Now, there's nothing in verse 10 that signifies that Abram's response is a sinful response. Notice in your copy of God's word, it says that they sojourn there. It doesn't say that they settle there. There's no sense in which Abram is throwing in the towel this early, saying, You know something? I know we Called me to go to Canaan. I know I've worshiped him here, but you know it really is better to be in Egypt. None of that that we see in the passage here. Rather, his fall comes when his faith falters with the first foe that he meets. The text is really clear about this. You don't have to do much imagining to see the situation. They come into this place of Pharaoh's palace, it's a place of opportunity for Abram, but it's also a place that is risky, not only to Abram, but to his wife. Notice in the passage here that we have Sarai in the passage in verse 11, but she becomes the woman throughout the rest of the passage. As as Abram begins to concoct his plan, there is a depersonalization of his wife. No longer is she Sarai, but she is the woman. She's beautiful. She's attractive. Abram knows that her beauty is going to be desired as they come in close proximity to the palace of Pharaoh. So he says, listen, this might be a win-win. This is what we can do. You can pretend that you are not my wife, but you are my sister. And there is a subtle sense of truth about this, that actually Abram and Sarai, that Sarai is his half-sister. Same father, different mother. So God says to them, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to provide for you. Abram is in this place where he says, maybe I can help with that a little bit. Maybe I can get close enough to the palace of Pharaoh so I can help with the blessing. I can speed this process up. I know it could put my wife in danger, but my ingenuity and my crafting in exchange for my wife in this moment, and maybe, as verse 13 says, it'll go well for me. Notice in the passage how it's not about Abram and Sarai. It's about, how's it going to go well for me? And it goes well for Abram. In verse 16, look what he gets out of this. Look at the loot that he receives at the end of this exchange here. But notice as Pharaoh's palace takes her in, sees her beauty, takes her into the house, the mother of a promised nation is threatened by the faithlessness and heartlessness act of the husband. Without Sarai, there's no lineage Her purity is being compromised in this place. Her safety is being compromised in this place. Abram is backed into a corner, and so his first reaction is himself and self-preservation to risk her dignity instead of protecting her, compromises her, and ultimately you need to understand that while you are not going to be in a situation like this, I mean, this is such a specific, ancient, Near Eastern situation, a situation that is so removed from your life, there's a temptation to just read this and say, well, I don't, I don't really even understand what's going on in this passage here. Rarely will you, as a husband or as a wife, as a teenager, as a college student, as someone who is single or someone who's an empty nester or someone who's a retiree here, will face a situation that has the specific details of this story, and I'm here to tell you that, that corners come in your workplace. you will be backed into a corner in your family life. You will be backed into a corner in your home life, and you will face the temptation to say, maybe this can be a win-win situation, and maybe I can manipulate the truth and live in dishonesty in such a way that I can speed up the promise and fill in the blank." I can help with the financial difficulties that I'm facing. I can help with the relational difficulties that I am facing. I can help with the interpersonal difficulties that are going on in the workplace or at home. And I can get in the midst of it. Notice what is the commonality of what I'm saying. I, 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 I. And Abram takes this all upon himself. He lives in dishonesty. He lives in manipulation. And we need to be reminded in a culture that is so confused about this. But may the church of Jesus Christ not be confused about this. God is never honored in the midst of our dishonesty and deception. Your dishonesty never leads to human flourishing. Your dishonesty as a husband or a wife, it never leads to flourishing for your family. This is the lie of Satan When you live in the lie, the lie is the illusion that the grass is always greener on the other side of our dishonesty or our deception. But our dishonesty digs a ditch that only the truth can get us out of. Our dishonesty digs a ditch that only the truth can get us out of. And there's some of us in this room that need to be reminded of the imagery of deceit. What do we what do we say about deceit? We we call it the metaphor that we use is what it is it is a web of deceit. We talk about a spider's web. We we talk about being lured into it and being entangled in it. Laws never liberate; they only enslave us. Dishonesty never leads. human flourishing, it always leads to spiritual and emotional and physical bondage. The truth will set us free. And there's some of you that I just need to speak this out, out of love, not out of judgment, because I have no idea your circumstances. But if you are here and you're a spouse and you're living in the web of deceit for and with your wife or your husband, I'm here to tell you that only the truth will set you free. That there is a bondage emotionally that you feel, if you were to be honest. There's a bondage physically that you feel as you're on the island of isolation and the island of manipulation and the island of dishonesty. Only the truth will set you free. There's some children that are here. There's some teenagers that are here. And if we're to be honest about this, there is always a temptation to be 13 or 14 or 15 or 16 and to begin to live two different lives. A a life that our parents know about, kind of our outer self, and a whole other second life. And we think to ourselves, we can do both. But you can't. You can't. And maybe it's not a week. Maybe it's not a month. But the illusion of dishonesty will break down. And you will be exposed. And the greater we live in the web of deceit, the greater that we, we think to ourselves, nobody's going to find out about this, and we continue down that road, the greater are the consequences. There's no doubt about this. The greater are the consequences for a church, for a family, for a workplace. Just, just turn on the news. Read the paper. There is no part of our society that is not being affected by the very things that we're talking about right here. From, from football coaches to preachers to politicians, there is just this web of confusion around honesty and the truth. And the church of Jesus Christ must understand that our call is always to say that there's a word for this. And that word is repentance. Repent of dishonesty and live in the freedom of truth. Only the truth will set you husband, you wife, you teenager, you employer or employee. It will set you free. So here we have Abram, hero of the faith. He's failing. He's falling before our very eyes. Why? Because, like all heroes, he has clay feet. Here, here are these horrific news. Sarah is taken in to the palace of the prince of Pharaoh, and the promises of God are threatened by the servant of God. What hope do we have at the end of verse 16? And the answer is no hope, but thank the Lord that the story doesn't end in verse 16. We are met with a divine conjunction. But the Lord, verse 17 of chapter 12, afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Go. And Pharaoh gave orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Verses two through 20 remind us that God is always faithful to keep his promises. There's not one of us in this room. Not one of us in this room. There is no holy, righteous place to stand, we're all exposed in the dishonesty that that entangles all of our hearts, the deception that we're all tempted to in big public ways or little private ways in just our morality and our walk with the Lord. And here we find the praise uh, that needs to be seen. Here we have the hope that needs to be seen. Here we have the but the Lord of the story here. Here's a plague that comes down. In verse 17, if you were to translate this from the Hebrew, it can be translated skin diseases. The text doesn't go into great detail here. We're going to get a lot of detail in the story of Exodus as God's people are once again in Egypt and they've got centuries of of bondage from a tyrannical Pharaoh and God comes to Moses and says, you need to go to him and say, let my people go. And he's like, I don't think Pharaoh cares much of what I say. And so God gives a little help. And we have a whole listing, and detail of the plagues. Here, it's very quick. Here, we have to imagine what's going on in the story here because we don't get all of the details, but we could begin to imagine that all of the palace of Pharaoh is inflicted with some type of skin disease and they look around and there's Sarah. And she doesn't have it. We can imagine that Pharaoh or one of the princes comes to her and says, what's the deal here? Look at us, look at you. We could begin to imagine in the story that she says, well, let me tell you another story. You know the person who said that uh, I was his sister? Well, actually, that's my husband, and we left a place called Ur. And then notice, notice here that, the, that ultimately God's promise for Abram is stronger than Abram's failure. That this story teaches us that Abram's lies cannot undo God's promise. That the grace of God extends to Sarai absent Abram's faithfulness. And this is good news for you and for me. Pharaoh, he calls Abram in. And look at the irony of this passage here. He says, what have you done? Here is a pagan pharaoh saying to this hero of the faith, why didn't you tell me the truth? I took her in to be my wife here. Abram is silent. We'll get Abram talking. We'll get Abram talking throughout the rest of this story, but here he's silent. Maybe it's the silence of conviction. I don't know. Maybe it's the silence of, of, of just an overwhelming sense of understanding what he's done in this moment. There's no justifications. There's no pleading with Pharaoh. Well, I thought this is what would happen. There there is no conversation. We have no idea how long Sarah has been in captivity here. We have no long what has happened to her in the midst of this. We have no portrait of their reunion. We can imagine the difficulty of their marriage going uh, forward from this. What we do know is the first family of faith. Those that have been promised land and lineage and blessing that the future of the Israelite nation isn't doing well except For those first three words of verse 17. But the Lord. Sarah is rescued by the but the Lord. Abram is helpless to save his wife. He can't go in there. It's the suicide mission. He knows that. Everyone would know that. Sarah has nowhere to turn but the Lord intervened. And aren't you thankful? As we've given these Bibles to our first graders, these 60 first graders, that one of the ways that we could say, you know what this Bible is about? It is about the but the Lord's all throughout it. That the gospel of Jesus Christ can be in many ways summed up in that phrase, but the Lord. Moses was a murderer. But the Lord met him in a burning bush and called him to be his voice, peace to Pharaoh, Jonah, had all kinds of prejudice and cowardice, but the Lord had a great fish to swallow him and as a nautical escort, spit him out on the shore of the very place he didn't want to go called Nineveh to preach the gospel of the good news of God's deliverance of those people. Peter, the great follower of Jesus, decides in jesus's greatest need that he is going to betray him and say i don't know him i don't know him and the third time i don't know him in the strongest most emphatic way peter denies even knowing jesus but the lord met peter or that charcoal fire An extended grace to him in the next portrait we have of Peter after the gospel is at the day of Pentecost. Who is going to stand up and proclaim the risen Lord and Savior? But the very one who betrayed him, how did that happen but the Lord? Saul was this great persecutor of the early church. He was hell-bent on stomping out this threat to the Israelite religion. But the Lord knocked him off of his high horse, and this great persecutor of the church becomes this great proclaimer of the church of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And your story and my story, all of us that are in this sanctuary today that have professed faith in Jesus Christ, your story is a but the Lord's story. Do you understand that that you you were dead in your sins? That there was no righteousness in you, that you were an enemy of God, do you understand? That there was nothing in you that God had to look at you and save you, but the Lord in the midst of your sin, but the Lord in the midst of your spiritual death, but the Lord in the midst of your alienation, he so loved you that he would send his son that anyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Your story at the age of six, at the age of 12, at the age of 18, at the age of 24, 36, 56, 66, story is a but the Lord's story. And aren't we thankful here that no matter where our past has taken us, that the but the Lord is still true for you? Because there are many of you in this room that you know what it's like to fail. That all of us in this room know what it's like to fall. Our our straying might differ, but the object is still the same. Maybe it's a dishonest business practice where we've blown it. We've run from God's best toward pride. We've run from God's best toward addiction. We've strayed from marital vows. There's a scar on our forehead that is an evidence that pride goes before the fall. All of us in this room know the words of that great hymn of the faith that we all have wondered. We've all are prone to leave the God that we love. But the Lord. UAB students are starting back. Sanford students are starting back. Jeff State students are starting back. Birmingham Southern students are starting back. We might have some some Sanford students that are here. Freshmen moved in. They've got something on campus today, but we maybe have some upperclassmen that are here. Returning students from the Birmingham metro area schools, and we're thankful that you're here. I heard a story just recently of this overbearing perfectionistic art professor and you have all these aspiring artists, and like all of us are a little insecure. We, we want to do our best. And they, they looked up to this kind of legend who, who had this ability to do sculptures in a way that was just world-renowned. And so what an honor it was to sit in their classroom. They'd get there in the classroom, and he would just lurk over their shoulder, hunched over, as they're beginning to to make their early efforts into sculpture. And when he was displeased, he would just go to what they were working on and he would just pick it and he would throw it into the garbage. And there's some of us in this room, we have this picture of God, that he's, he's lurking over our shoulder. And at our first mistake, at our first failure, at our first difficulty, he picks us up and he throws us in the trash bin of our mistake and our failure. And I'm here to remind you of the gospel truth that Abram and Sarai, they're there at the start of chapter 12, and they've got a U-Haul and it's loaded up in Ur with all of their possessions. And they're following God's leadership. And immediately they descend through Abram's faithlessness to a a ditch of failure. But here's the good news. It's not the end of their story. And you, child of God, it is not the end of your story. God called Abram and he called Sarai and he is going to use them despite their imperfections. And where Abram falters, God is faithful. You have fallen. I have fallen. You have uh, fallen. We have all failed. We all know the, the smell of the ditch that we have dug. But you need to also understand that God is faithful. That he doesn't cast his children to the trash bin of their mistakes and their imperfections. Paul would say this to the church at Rome, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, and all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Are they earthly consequences for our sin? Yes, and yes, and yes. Does God call you? Does He call me? Does He call us to holiness? Yes, and yes, and yes. But this morning, I want you to bask in the glorious gospel good news of the but the Lord of your life. He is still faithful, even in the midst of our failures and our fall. God is always faithful to keep his promises. And that, my friends, that, my friends, is good gospel news. Let us pray. Lord, we... We stop and we pause, reflecting upon the story that seems so far removed from our lives. But as we look closer, we we see that conjunction that has intersected our life. We, We are thankful for the but the Lord's in our life. We are thankful that your promises are sure and they are true, even in the midst of our imperfections and our failure that your love extends to us even in the ditch of disobedience, that you have a plan for your children that goes beyond our ability to be perfect. Thank you that in Christ, our perfection has been met in your son, that while we are faithless at times, you are always faithful. And so we bask and we glory in the perfection of Christ Jesus. We look not to our past. We look not to our present. But we look to you as the hope of glory. And that in you, what we can never be, you have been. You are our righteousness. You are our holiness. You are our perfect obedience to a standard that we could never keep. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the but the Lord's in all of the lives of the children of God in this sanctuary this morning. We thank you for your faithful promise keeping. It's in your name we pray, amen.